Welcome to Bible Insights with Wayne Conrad. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Today's topic, the Christian and history. Let me ask you a question. Do you read history? I'm sorry to say this, so many people today do not read history. And so when we ask that question, many people just say no or they don't look at you sort of funny. But here's a little follow-up question. Do you value history? And that, that one even gets funnier looks. But here's the truth. History is extremely important because history is where we've come from and it shapes what's happening now and what is going to be happening in the future. And this is especially true with reference to God's people, to the church, and to the advancement of the Christian faith. So let me rephrase the question. What, what do you think God's attitude toward history is? Well, you know, we don't have to guess about that because the Bible is very plain. But before I do that, let me give a definition of history because it's important that we understand what we're talking about. Now, I didn't make up this definition. It's certainly succinct. But John Lucas says it is the remembered past. Can't get any succinct, more succinct than that. But you know, it's more than that because it's not just the remembered past. It's the remembered past that's recorded and in some respects reconstructed and interpreted. So John McKenzie, or Tracy McKenzie, I should say, in an interview about a book says this about history. He said the crucial point to understand is that history is not equivalent to the past itself. The near infinite totality that encompasses everything that human beings have ever said, done, or thought. Almost all of that past is irrevocably lost to us. And he goes on to say, but God in his omniscience knows its every detail perfectly and exhaustively, but we humans deal with a tiny subject of the whole, a fraction that has been imperfectly preserved in physical artifacts and oral traditions. The difference between the past and history so defined is enormous. So we can speak of history then, he goes on to say, to denote an academic discipline, a specific way of training our minds to analyze historical evidence and to build historical interpretations to the end that we maximize our abilities to make sense of the past. Now, going into a little bit of an academic excursion there, but I think it's important that we have to understand that history is not just a record of the past, but it's the reconstruction of the past based on the evidence that we can find. But God has placed evidence in history, in the artifacts of history, in the accounts of people, in writings, and so from that we're able to understand things that have happened in the past. In fact, this is one reason God commanded the law to be written, that he commanded Moses to write, and all the writers of the Testaments, both the old and the new. It's because it records sacred history. Now, sacred history is the history of God's interactions in the world that produces a people for his own namesake. And in the Old Testament, that was God calling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and subsequently calling Moses and giving Moses revelation 
all the way back to the beginning and God continuing to work in the history of the nation of Israel, of the people, the Hebrew people, until it climaxes, in a way, in the coming of the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, who is a descendant of Abraham and of David, who is the son of Mary, but who is also the unique son of the living God. So history is very important because it's embedded in the very life of the people of God. And when we read the scriptures, we are in many instances reading history. And so we need to value it, not only the biblical history that's recorded for us in the scriptures, but we need to value the history of God's working in his people since the inception of the church. And this is why many times we do celebrate certain days. And this is embedded in the law itself. In the Old Covenant, through Moses, God gave a series of feast days in an annual cycle so that his people would remember the deeds of the past that constituted them a nation, that constituted them a special people of God. And they were to do certain actions and say certain words and to gather in certain assemblies. And all of it is to repeat part of the story and in repeating the story, to repeat the reasons, to repeat the reasons for God doing what he did and for the revelation of what God has to say about himself and about his people. And this continues even into the New Testament. Although we're not required to keep the feast days of the Old Covenant, and there are no specific feast days cataloged for us in the New Covenant, except that we gather together for assembly weekly uh, before the Lord God. Nevertheless, history is very important. And I think that we should grasp something of God's attitude toward history so that we can be spurred to read the history, so that we can be spurred to value it and to learn from it, because this is so very important in the life of God's people. So let's listen to the Word of God. Psalm 145 is sort of a call to worship, but it's a call to worship based on history. Psalm 145, verse 4, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. In fact, one of the great components of proper biblical worship is the declaration of the deeds of God in scripture reading, in songs that we sing, in psalms that we read, in teachings that we give. Listen to this, Psalm 78. In fact, Psalm 78 and 79 are sort of a capsule of the history of God working in the Hebrew people at the time that he led them out of Egypt. Here's what the psalmist says. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. This is God speaking through the psalmist. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, 
the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So this is a commandment that we are to tell the story, we're to rehearse the history, we're to explain its meaning, both the negative and the positive, so that each coming generation will understand what God has done and will avoid the evil of the past and build on the good for the future. Psalm 44, verse 1, which is a, a hymn. It's to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. Psalm 102.18 says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. This may surprise you, but the first commandment God gave to the Hebrews in the land of Egypt, when Moses came as a deliverer underneath the anointing of Yahweh God, was the command to do the Passover. Now, to do the Passover means that the event of the Passover had to occur. So the event of the Passover is given in detail with detailed instructions. And then they are told that they are to repeat this ceremony every year. Now, they won't do the actual event every year, but they'll re repeat portions of that ceremony every year with questions and answers and foods and instruction. Why? To understand what God has done to understand the nature of the relationship with God and to build on that relationship as the people of God in covenant union with him. That was the first commandment. Then it's enshrined in the law that was given on Mount Sinai. It's not mentioned in the Ten Commandments, but Leviticus 23 gives a whole list of feast days that the nation was to observe. Well, that's the Old Testament and we do no longer keep those feast days, though it's important that we understand them and sometimes that we celebrate them in teaching. And if you are a Hebrew Christian, a Jewish Christian, it might be very uh, good for you to actually do some kind of observance of them because you're not only related to Christ with reference uh, to the New Covenant, but you also go all the way back uh, to Father Abraham in a physical sense. And so we can leave that where it is. The New Testament tells us that we're not obligated uh, to keep feast days, and including voluntary days that we might, in our zeal to teach God's word and worship God, might create in order to remember God's deeds of old. Instead, we're given liberty. We found this in Romans 14 and also in Colossians 2 that we can observe days or choose not to observe days, the one thing we must do is we must not demand that others keep a day because we keep it or refuse to keep one because we think it's wrong. In other words, we're at liberty to observe days. But if we do observe days, they must be rooted in biblical revelation and they must be rooted in the history of God's dealings with his people that recovers biblical revelation or that preserves biblical revelation. And if we do so, we can discover a great source for Christian growth 
of understanding the faith and a great source for contentful Christian worship that reviews the great deeds of God, not only the deeds of the past with Israel, but the deeds he did in saving us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why the church early on began sort of an observance of what we call a Christian year, sort of that each year we sort of, in some way, review the major events of the life of Christ and our teaching and our preaching and our worship. So they were constantly bringing before us the substance of the gospel. You see, the gospel is not just believe on Jesus and be saved. The gospel is the full story of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorious ministry in heaven, his coming again, who he is, what he has done for the salvation of you, his people. Rejoice in it. Grow in it. Worship God through it. This will convey the gospel in our worship services as well as in our understanding, such as in classrooms and teachings. Oh, history is so important, so important to God. It's important, so important that he, he's the one who invented it. He's the one who makes the past, present, and future because he is the creator who is above it all. And he is the God who is active in the midst of it. He has intervened in history, in the life of mankind, to reveal himself to the patriarchs of old. And supremely, he's intervened in history, in the coming of Jesus Christ, in the days of Caesar Augustus, a particular time, a particular place, through particular people, a real man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, who's the Savior of those who belong to God. Learn your history, brother and sister. Rejoice in it. Read God's word and read Christian history. You'll be surprised at how much it can influence your life for the good, how much it can help you in your Christian walk. This has been Wayne Conrad with Bible Insights with an exhortation to take history of God's people Seriously, because God believes it's important.